first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations." But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book 
of life. Chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank You that as we have finished this Christmas season that we were able to celebrate the fact that You came to earth to die and to rise again. We pray Your blessing on this time as we listen to Your Word. Uh, Give us ears to hear Your truth and then hearts to obey its commands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And they all lived happily ever after. When we hear those words, our minds go back to the fairy tales and the stories we were told as children. Stories where the good guys always win, the dragon is always defeated, and the hero always saves the day. Then everyone lives happily ever after. Everything's great, you know, but kids aren't the only ones who think this way. Especially at Christmas time, adults are prone to view the world in much the same terms. At Christmas, everyone's already so happy. Even us here at church, we're talking about Advent, we're talking about who Jesus is, we're talking about what Jesus did. I mean, it is a time of celebration. And it's easy to be lured into thinking that everything's okay when Christmas songs are playing in stores and everyone seems so cheery all the time. But if you're like me, you may be left with kind of a sinking feeling that happens after Christmas. As we gather on this final Sunday of 2019, closing a decade, I look back on a year that actually hit me kind of hard, and it seems like life is anything but happily ever after. Even though Jesus has already come, I mean, let's just take a look back at what's happened you know, through this year alone. I know we've seen hurricanes here on the East Coast. We've seen wildfires almost completely destroy the West Coast. We've seen typhoons and tsunamis in Asia. We see nations at war. We see our national politics in complete shambles and division. In our communities, we see families being torn apart, relatives diagnosed with diseases that can't be treated. And maybe as this year comes to an end, and your own body gains another year, you begin to feel a little more aching and stiffness, reminding you that you're not getting any younger, and that all of us here in this room are just one year closer to death. Not very happily ever after. On a personal level, the last month in particular has been difficult. Um, About a month ago, I received news that one of my friends, who he was a sergeant that I deployed with, um, finally lost his battle with cancer. I mean, the guy wasn't even 30 years old. He's still really young. And then two weeks ago, another one of my friends, who I worked in the same office with, decided that his own life was no longer worth living. And so he decided to end it. Once again, I don't even think the guy was 25. And now his wife and newborn child have to figure out what life means without a husband and a father. 
And the exact same day I found out about that suicide, I was with my family as we were watching the local news in my hometown. And then during the news, a mugshot comes across the screen of a man I know. And he was a family friend. Uh, he was a former member of my church back home. I mean, he worked with my dad for a while. We knew this guy really well. But he was resisting arrest in a drunken and belligerent state after being found setting fire to a house that had four children inside of it. And at this point, I just wonder, like, what do we do with all of this? And these are, just, these are just stories from one guy. I mean, look around for a minute. How many other people in this room are dealing with things like this or worse? As we come to the end of 2019, we are reminded that despite Jesus' coming, we still live in a fallen world. These natural disasters, these deaths, these are all examples of the flaming swords of Eden that remind us that we can't go back to the way things were at creation. When thing, everything was perfect in the Garden of Eden. But if Jesus has come, if the reconciliation has began like we preached about last week, when is it going to be complete? And what's it going to look like when it finally does arrive? Well, that's what I'm hoping to speak about today. So Christmas may be over, and Advent may be finished. We don't have the candles out anymore, but in a sense, Advent has begun again. Because just like the early Jews waiting for a Messiah, we are now waiting as well. But it's for the second coming of that Messiah. And when he returns, the end of this story will finally take place. And, and don't think that I mean anything negative when I say that this is a story. This isn't a story like fairy tales. This is way better. Because it's the truest story that's ever been told, and that's what makes it so wonderful. So my goal today is that in hearing this story, uh, you would walk away from here with a biblically grounded hope for the future. Uh, a confident assurance of the future which would then change the way you live right now. So, in a broader sense, that's exactly what this book of Revelation is all about. That's why it was written. Um, Jesus says in the first chapter of Revelation that this book was given so that we would know what would soon take place. And so here's how I understand it. It's like, it's like going to see a movie that has a really crazy twist at the end. I don't know if anybody's ever seen uh, Christopher Nolan's The Prestige, but that's like a great example of what I'm talking about here. Once you know the ending of that movie, you go back, and if you watch it a second time, you will see that movie completely differently. All of a sudden, seemingly insignificant details, things you didn't care about the first time you watched the movie, now have a crazy amount of meaning because you understand the end. Because knowing the end of the movie changes the way you interact with the movie. And in a similar way, when we rightly understand the end of the biblical story, it should change the way we live now as we live out our story. So, just a quick recap of where we're at. Uh, over the last few weeks, this church has been uh, discussing the major components of the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus. We started during the first week with creation, and we saw how God is the author of everything. And in its original design, the world and everything in it was created as being good. There was no death, there was no decay, there was no evil. Everything was good, in the truest sense of the word. And the first humans on earth were in perfect relationship with God, and they rightly acknowledged his authority over their lives uh, and over the earth. 
But sadly, the earth didn't remain like that. Adam and Eve, the first humans, decided that they didn't like God being in charge over them and thought that it would be better if they took control instead. So they disobeyed the command God had given them. They asserted their own independence away from God and in so doing invited evil into the world. And this is what we call the fall. That was week two. Man's willing descent into sin and with that sin we are told came death and destruction and every evil thing. So at this point, it doesn't look very good for mankind. And God would have been right to leave us like that and to let us bear the consequences of our own actions. But He doesn't do that, right? In His mercy, He prophesies about a person who will undo the curse of the fall. Right? As early as the Garden of Eden, He promises a Savior who will come to bring order and restoration and healing to the world. And that's what last week's message was about. The topic of reconciliation. Jesus, by His death and resurrection, is now reconciling all things to Himself. Right? Forgiving sin, conquering death, and then promising future restoration. Which brings us to Revelation 21 and 22. Because those chapters give us a picture of what this promised restoration is going to look like. Now, some people call this uh, the stage like restoration. Some call it consummation because it's the final piece of Christ's redemptive work. Just know if you hear either term, we're talking about the same thing. Um, but this morning, I want to highlight four things from this text. And each one will summarize a key concept from Christ's work of restoration. The first thing we see from this passage we just read is the restoration of nature or the restoration of the created order. Uh, looking at Revelation 21.1 again, where we see that the future restoration will be characterized by a new heaven and a new earth. And the important thing here is to remember that when Adam sinned, it didn't affect just us humans. It actually affected nature too. As God gives the curse in Genesis 3, He says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. And he then talks about how thorns and thistles will now overcome the earth. When you look around at the disasters that strike the world, right? We already mentioned like tornadoes, hurricanes, snowstorms. Or even something as simple as dealing with thorns in a garden. Or weeds choking a crop. It's because sin has affected nature. It too is under a curse. Because those things aren't supposed to happen. Right, the Apostle Paul makes it a little clear in Romans 8, verses 18 through 22. And listen to what he says here. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The earth is under a curse. And it groans while it waits to be set free. Right? As great as nature is, it's still under a curse. It's still broken. Even the best sunset you've ever seen or the greatest trip your family has taken to the Grand Canyon, right? you can look at those things and appreciate their beauty, and we should, because they're works of God. But never forget that those were meant to be more glorious. 
Those sights are still a part of the broken creation that sin has affected. But there will come a day when that creation will be completely redeemed. A new earth will be a new reality. And the effects of the curse will be gone. And the beauty that God intended in nature will be unfiltered. The natural disasters that wipe away people's homes and that cause destruction will finally be gone. The peace and order from a perfect creation will be here again. I can't wait for it. It reminds me, we sang it last week, uh, you know, the song Joy to the World. You know, the third verse says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, or thorns infest the ground. Right? He's talking about the curse on creation. And then the author says, He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Right? Creation is longing. It is groaning. It is waiting for the return of Christ. It's waiting for the curse to be reversed. Here, the earth will be made new. But it's not just nature that will be redeemed at this time. The second thing for today is that there will be a restoration of man's relationship with God. Revelation 21 verses 2 through 3 says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The reason that God has not been dwelling with mankind until now is because of the fall. A sinful mankind cannot be in the presence of a perfect and a holy God. But the fact that John sees this image in his revelation shows us that mankind will no longer be sinful. Just like in the Garden of Eden, there will be a perfect and unbroken fellowship with God between God and His people. Verse 27 of chapter 21 further expounds on this and says that nothing unclean or nothing false will ever enter the city. A holy God will now dwell with His holy people. And when I say He will dwell with His people, I do mean His people. The text is very specific about who this group is. It's not everyone who thinks they were a good person. And it's not everyone who says that they are a Christian. If you look at verses 6 and 7, a contrast is made between two different groups. One of those groups are those who are God's people. The other as those who are not. Verse 6 says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So the first group of people, described as God's children, are those characterized as by thirst. And the meaning of this is the same thing that Jesus was meaning in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, it's those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. These are the people who are convicted of their own sin by the Spirit. Those who have accepted Christ as their Savior. 
These are the same ones that John says in verse 27 are the ones written in the Lamb's book of life. If you have not put your faith in Christ, and if you are not submitting your life to His direction, then you are not in this category. You are in the second category with everyone else. And it's made up of people who prefer the things of this world more than the things of God. He gives a, a list of sins there in that text that we, we won't go through them all. But it's sufficient to say that if any of those adjectives describe you, then you are in trouble. These are characteristics of people who love their sin more than they love following Jesus. And if that is you, you should not expect to spend eternity with God. Instead, it says, there's a lake that burns with fire and sulfur known as the second death. That is the fate of all of those apart from Christ. So if that is you today, then today is your opportunity to come to Jesus, to confess your sin, and to accept the free forgiveness that He offers to all those who would come to Him. For those who are already Christians, this text shows us that the final restoration will bring us back to what life was like in the Garden of Eden, where God walked among His people. There was perfect fellowship. There was no distance. The cause of our separation will be gone. Sin will be no more. And God no longer confines you know, the manifestation of His presence to just a tabernacle or a temple. His presence is everywhere in this city. And it's so glorious that you won't even need a sun or a moon or any light the majority of chapter 21 gives some specific details about the dimensions and the layout of the city, um, which is perfect in every way. I mean, even its dimensions are perfect. And it resembles you know, the Holy of Holies, the, you know, the inner part of the sanctuary of the, the tabernacle and the temple. God dwells with His people all the time. Not just in the temple, not just in the tabernacle. And so too, our relationship with God will there be perfect. Another cool thing about this relationship is that it's never going to end. That brings us to number three. The third thing we see in this restoration is the restoration of life. In one sense, perfect life means that there's no more death. Death originally entered the world because of sin, and since there will be no more sin when Christ reigns, there's not going to be any death. Revelation 21.4 says that He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Can you imagine a world without death? Think about it for a minute. No more death. No more having to sit in a hospital room with a child that stopped breathing. No more going to a funeral and seeing the shell of someone you used to know now unresponsive and laying in a casket. The ache and the grief that fills this world will now be gone because the source of that grief is gone. Scriptures tell us that death itself will die. In its place, there will now be life. Abundant life. Life strong enough to overcome and to reverse all of the death that has happened before it. Think about Jesus' body after He was crucified. Right? He's, he's lying in the tomb. He's dead. 
And then all of a sudden, right, the Spirit of God moves. Right, life shoots through His body again with a power that can never be undone. And now what was once dead in a tomb will never die again. And you know what's great? Well, obviously that, but you know what else is great? That that is one day going to be us. Right? Resurrected with perfect and glorified bodies. And I should also add that it's not just us that this is going to happen to. It's anyone who has ever placed their faith in God. Ever. Right? The story involves more than us. There is going to be a resurrection of the dead. And the physical bodies of those who have been in Christ will be restored. You know, for all of their faults... Those who talk about like the upcoming zombie apocalypse kind of have the story half right. The dead are coming back to life. But it's not going to be like that. It won't be death taking over life. It will be life overtaking death. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5 as the mortal being swallowed up by life. It's not that we die and then we take off the old and we put on the new. No, it's that what is dead gets so overcome with life, so overrun with perfection, that it is now fully restored. Right? Christ says, I'm making all things new. No more arthritis, no more disease, no more cancer that takes our friends, or our bodies breaking down over time. Just life, and with it, the ability to now enjoy it. As we're told in Ecclesiastes of the meaningless of life, that we're, we're not able to enjoy the things of the earth because everything always goes wrong. But if you look at verse 4, in addition to life, right, there would be no more pain. There would be no crying, no mourning. Just abundant life as God intended. And lastly for today, this brings us to number 4. We will see the restoration of the nations. We find this in Revelation 21, verses 24 through 26, and then at the very beginning of Revelation 22. But if you look around at the, the earth now, it doesn't take much observation to see that there are problems amongst the nations, right? Terrorists use violence and fear to bend others to their will. Nations go to war against each other. Right, Psalm 2 tells us that the nations are raging, you know, not just against themselves, but, says, but against Christ himself. There's this feeling of independence that all nations want to have. You can't tell me I'm not the leader. I don't want to submit myself to a higher authority. And it's not just national armies, though. It's, it's us. Right? We go to war amongst other nations within our local community. Think about all of the division that occurs over national identity. Right? I don't want him in my country. He's not American. And that person doesn't look like he's from here, or she doesn't sound like she's from here. But what are we doing when we do that? All we're doing is we're dividing based off of a national identity or an ethnic or racial identity. They are different from me, therefore I need to keep my distance. And once again... This starts playing out after Eden, right? Cain was jealous, didn't like that Abel outdid him, so what does he do? Kills him. The Egyptians don't like the Israelites, so what do they do? They put them in slavery. 
And Jesus reminds us that if you even hate your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. Sounds like war to me. As soon as our vertical relationship with God was broken, our horizontal relationship with our fellow man became unglued. And Christ intends to restore this. Christ has already restored our relationship with God through His own death on the cross. And now through the power of the Spirit, we work to bring reconciliation amongst other people. That is what the church is supposed to be. Earlier in the book of Revelation, we we didn't read it, but you look at chapters 4 and chapter 5, and you look around the throne where God is, and there is reconciliation and there is unity. It says there are people, Revelation 5, 9 says, people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation are joined as one people in worshiping Christ. The wounds caused by our pride and division, it says, will now be healed. And we should absolutely work towards this now, but we also recognize that it will never be perfect and it will never be complete until Christ comes. By the light of God's glory, the nations will walk, verse 24 says. The kings of the earth will no longer war against each other, but will now enter God's city. And then in chapter 2, we have this beautiful image that takes us back to Eden once again. Just like in Eden, there's a river running from the city of God. Right? There's, a, there's also a tree of life that's near this water. In Eden, Adam and Eve weren't allowed to eat from the tree. In the new Eden, the leaves from the tree are going to be used for the healing of the nations. Finally, restoration without division. So all of these wars and skirmishes, these desires for power, these vain and prideful boasts of selfish territory, me taking over your country because I want your resources, are going to be done. And there will be peace between the nations because Everyone will now be in willful and happy subjection to God and in perfect relationship with Him. And when we are in perfect relationship with Him, we will be in perfect relationship with each other. The hostility that exists between races and ethnicities will finally be gone. In place of that rage and hostility, there will be the healing of the nations. The separation that occurred at the Tower of Babel will be redeemed. No more division, no more hostility, but there will be one city and there will be one kingdom and we will be its citizens. We will be citizens from every earthly tribe and language and people and nation. It won't matter that you were American. It won't matter what your skin color was. There will only be one king and one citizenship and the only citizenship test is whether your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So when I feel distant from God, I remember that there's, there won't be much more time until I'll have perfect fellowship with Him in that holy city. And that gives me hope. You know, it's, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to mourn over lost ones or injustices around us. But that mourning should ultimately always point us back to Christ. It should remind us that there is coming a day when He will make all things right in a new heavens and a new earth. A day where He's going to make everything new. Like nature, we too groan, eagerly waiting for that final restoration. Knowing the end 
should give us encouragement that we can face what's before us. So as I begin to close and as the band comes up, uh, I want to recount to you one of my favorite movie scenes. It's from a, a movie called Big Fish uh, by Tim Burton. And at the first part of this movie, the main character is about 12 years old. And he finds this woman in his town who has the ability to show people how they are going to die. But before showing it to him, she asks him, Hey, do you really want to know how your life is going to end? And he kind of hesitates about it. He says, you know, on one hand, knowing how you were going to die could kind of mess you up. Because then you would just become too focused on nothing but your death and you wouldn't enjoy life. But on the other hand, he says, it could, it could help you. Because if you knew for certain how and when you would die, if you knew the end from the beginning, then you would know that through every other challenge and pain in life, you were going to make it through. That you would survive everything life could throw at you, no matter how bad things get, because this wasn't the end. You could live your life with freedom, knowing that you would make it through. Right? This isn't how the story stops. And in a sense, this is the security and the encouragement that we have as believers. We do know the end from the beginning. We know that regardless of what happens to our bodies here on earth, we'll have a resurrected body. No matter how separated we may feel from God now, our fellowship with Him will soon be unbroken. Despite the evil we see, despite the pain that we do experience, there is coming a day, our text says, where every tear will be wiped away, every death resurrected, and every curse reversed. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to mourn the loss of those we love. But that mourning should point us to Christ. And it should remind us of that coming day when He will make all things right. This world is not what it should be. At least not yet. And it won't be until Christ returns. And until then, we work with all of our strength to be faithful in the areas that He has called us to. We remain faithful until His return. And on that day, the end really will be happily ever after. Or maybe I've been saying that incorrectly up until now. Because I guess the end really isn't the end. In a sense, it's only the beginning. Because something else, something better, then begins. You know, C.S. Lewis says it better than I could um, in the, the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia. He says, But the things that began to happen after that were so great, so beautiful, that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. You see, the end that we are longing for, the end that is coming where Christ returns, we talk about that like it's the end. We even call it the end times when we're having conversations about it. But really, it's the beginning. All of our lives and all of our experiences are only the first page of the book that God is writing with our lives. The end is not the end. 
And I hope today that that gives you hope. Hope that no matter what happens here, there is coming a true and a beautiful happily ever after. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you for all that you have done in Christ. As this year comes to a close, we remind ourselves that time is deceitful. And it so often lures us away into thinking that our life on earth is all that will matter. Lord, remind us that the eternal is far weightier and far more real than what we can see now. When we become discouraged, distracted, remind us that our home is not ultimately here, but in heaven with you. And for these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.